Welcome to the Healthy Figures Podcast, where we dive deep into the figures that affect your health. We'll discuss both literal figures like biomarkers and risk scores and human figures that are actively changing how healthcare gets delivered. Note that the information we provide in this podcast and at Precision Health Reports is not intended to replace consultation with a qualified medical professional. Don't take your health for granted. You only have one life to live. All right. Welcome to the newest episode of the Healthy Figures podcast. Uh, I'm joined again today by our esteemed chief medical officer, uh, Dr. William Cromwell. As our our last episode, we we talked about metabolic health and Dr. Cromwell hinted hinted a little bit about lipoproteins. And of course, it was going to be, you know, probably several episodes worth of content. So we figured uh, we'd jump in and just start talking about lipoproteins. Welcome, Bill. Well, hey, Matt, this could be a kind of an interesting conversation. It could be a long conversation. There's a lot to unpack here, but let's uh, see where we want to start. Well, sure. Let's start with what exactly is a lipidologist. You're nationally renowned in this space, and most people have never been exposed to this subspecialty of lipidology. So we'd love to hear your take on that. Well, a lipidologist is a person who studies cholesterol and triglyceride metabolism. That's the, the simplest, shortest definition. Cholesterol and triglycerides are are fats. We have to have them to be alive. Our body makes them as well as uh, has to transport them in some way through our body and utilize them for different purposes. And so there's a whole field of medicine that is devoted to problems that occur when there are abnormalities in the way that in one way or another, we either make, uh, distribute, metabolize cholesterol, triglyceride, and the particles that carry them around. What got you into being a lipidologist to begin with? When I started medical school, there really was not a lipidology field as such. When I started in medical school, the question that I had on my mind is, what kills people? And the answer was vascular disease. So then the next question was, are there ways that we could reduce people's risk for vascular disease? This was back in the early 1980s. And what we understood at that point is that there were risk factors. And if you look at very large populations like the Framingham Heart Study, it was pretty clear that people with smoking, diabetes, high blood pressure, family history of vascular disease, all had a greater rate of having heart attacks and strokes than the average person. This translated then into a number of different studies and thoughts as to what might work to decrease heart disease. And early on in that discussion, there was something about high cholesterol that people were still trying to better understand. So cholesterol means something that you measured was appealing to me. I was a physical chemist who went to medical school. So if you measure something and measuring could have some impact on decreasing risk of heart attack and stroke, that seemed like it was a pretty good place to start my interest in medical school. Just basically followed that from one point to another and ultimately ended up devoting my my clinical practice to simply cholesterol and triglyceride metabolism. That's great. And so with, you know, with those things, maybe, maybe some definitions would help around different kinds of cholesterol, triglycerides, LDLC, uh, HDL. How, how, do you, how do you really categorize each of those definitions? Well, let's go way back. Uh, let's go back to the point where we started to think that cholesterol might be important in vascular disease and work our way forward because it, it basically simplifies itself. Uh, many times it's that deductive reasoning that uh, is the history of medicine that gives us better insight as to what these things really mean. So if we go back to the 1800s, um, heart attacks were not unheard of back then. They were fairly common. People were investigating the actual lesions, the blockages that caused heart attacks, and it was observed that there was a lot of cholesterol 
in the blockage itself that resulted in the heart attack. So the question then was, if cholesterol is part of this process of blockage formation and then heart attack in some way, where did the cholesterol come from? Did we make it? Did we transport it? What's up with that? So cholesterol then became a point of emphasis. And not only did we know that cholesterol was an integral part of cell membranes and an integral part of physiology, it became very clear to us that, that cholesterol uh, was very dynamic in the way that the body not only used it, but the way that it was produced. And there must be a mechanism to transport it from one part of the body to another in some way. And this became a lot of work over a 30, 40 year period of time to unpack uh, cholesterol and its role in its transportation. So we can fast forward a little bit and say that there were two basic theories. One theory was that cholesterol would be bound to proteins that were circulating in the blood. And that could be one way that cholesterol moved around. The other theory was that cholesterol and triglycerides would somehow be incorporated into a vehicle, a transporter that would move it around. Because what we really knew was that you can't make fat and water go into solution together. So fat doesn't dissolve in water, cholesterol and triglyceride are fats, blood is mostly water, therefore there has to be more to the story. And this is where uh, two guys, uh, Goffman and Lindergan in 1950 made uh, basically the discovery of human lipoproteins. And what they determined was that there are these structures that look kind of like tennis balls. They are spherical, they are hollow on the inside, and they are packed with cholesterol and triglyceride. There are substances on the outside that allow that ball to be in solution in the blood and move around without any difficulty. The rest of the work they did was to basically, uh, using different physical chemical methods, determine all of the different lipoproteins that we have and what they basically do. And so this is where the letter names that people are familiar with come in. The technology they were using was a density flotation technology. So they were separating lipoproteins by those that were more dense and those that were less dense. They didn't have a very creative way of, of trying to come up with a name for these things. So the highest density lipoproteins were called high density lipoproteins, which we abbreviate now as HDL. The least dense were the very low density lipoproteins. In between were low density lipoproteins. And as they further unpacked that, there were other classes of lipoproteins, but basically it was due to their density in a media that caused the designation of some particles as being high density or HDL lipoproteins, low density lipoproteins. This got us then on the, on the path that there were particles that did different things. Some were good in terms of trying to prevent the development of vascular disease, some were injurious in that uh, a high quantity of them accelerated vascular disease. And that's really where uh, the world was in the early 60s, uh, moving into what was a very prolific time of, of research and development about the time that, that I was entering medicine. That's uh, probably more information than anyone has heard about different kinds of particles, the, the cholesterol inside the particles. You know, most people just hear uh, LDL is bad cholesterol and HDL is good cholesterol, but no one really understands why those were categorized as such. Is, is there any, any um, from a, what, what my old army commanders used to refer to it as, you know, Ned in the first grade reader level information, you know, why was, why was LDL considered 
the good cholesterol or bad cholesterol and HDL consider the good cholesterol? Is there any easy way to explain that? It really has to do with the way that animal models and, and other systems that were studied had a, an effect based on the number and type of particles that were present. So high right. density lipoprotein particles at the time they were discovered were associated with decreased uh, incidence of cardiovascular disease. They didn't know exactly why, but in general, the more HDL particles were present, the less vascular disease was identified. Now you have to be able to measure these things somehow. And a lipoprotein particle is a complex mixture of phospholipids, free cholesterol, esterified cholesterol, other components, several different types of proteins on the outer surface. And so the question is, how do you come up with a single chemical test that would tell you with certainty how many of those HDL particles you have? That was a very daunting task. But what could be measured very easily was cholesterol. There, there were tests for that that people could do. So the idea was if you separate lipoproteins based on their density and you take the high density lipoprotein fraction, you measure the cholesterol in that fraction, you come up with HDL cholesterol. And similarly, you could use your density uh, means by uh, ultracentrifugation, and you can take a different cut, if you will, of the blood and say, well, this cut of the blood has the low density lipoprotein fraction in it, and I'll measure the cholesterol in that uh, and see what I have as LDL or low density lipoprotein cholesterol. So the idea was that cholesterol would be used as a means to infer how much of these different types of lipoproteins you had. It seemed like a pretty reasonable idea. It's much like somebody saying, um, I'd like to use water to figure out how many bottles are on my desk. I have a bottle of water on my desk right now. It says there's a liter of water in the bottle. Therefore, one liter of water should be one bottle. And if I were given five liters of water, then I would infer there were five bottles because each bottle has a liter in it. That was basically the way that cholesterol quantification came into being is that we could measure it easily. We could measure it in a fraction that was attributed to a specific lipoprotein. And the more cholesterol you measured, the more of the stuff you had. And the less cholesterol you measured, the less of the stuff you had. And that was pretty good to get started with. It sounds like a good, a good way to measure some of it, but it seems probably a lot less accurate than really measuring the particles themselves. Is that really why LDL and HDL C have really been what, what gets measured in most clinic, clinical practices versus going down and really measuring the particles? Absolutely. It was absolutely because of convenience, not because of performance. It has never been the case that a cholesterol measure has outperformed a particle number measure. But because of the difficulty of trying to measure lipoproteins directly and because of the ease and lack of cost of using cholesterol as um, a guesstimate, so to speak, uh, the world turned on cholesterol because it was close enough. And the, the relationship of uh, how well it did or, or did not quantify lipoproteins really didn't get a whole lot of scrutiny. And this really gathered steam in 1972 because prior to 1972, to get an LDL cholesterol, you had to go through several steps to separate um, the lipoproteins into the different components and then test each individual component. There was an equation that was developed in 1972 called the Friedewald equation, 
which took advantage of knowing certain things about lipoproteins and being able to mathematically estimate LDL cholesterol so that you didn't have to go through the process of trying to uh, have extra steps of separation and quantification. So this Friedewald calculation of LDL cholesterol in 1972 basically sealed the deal that we were going to use cholesterol as a currency of the realm. And if you look at large population studies, it appeared to do reasonably well. So if you take a population of people, let's say you take a thousand people, and your interest is what is the relationship of cholesterol with vascular disease? The higher the cholesterol, the more vascular disease you'll have. The more the LDL cholesterol, the greater the vascular disease you have. These types of simple relationships in a population seemed to indicate that use of cholesterol for that purpose was reasonable. Now, remember, this was a time when we didn't have very many uh, strategies to lower cholesterol. We certainly didn't have very effective medicines to lower cholesterol. We did not have large randomized trials to tell us whether it was a good thing or a bad thing to use drugs to lower cholesterol. So cholesterol was being used as a means to infer risk with the hope that someday it could be the case that we could change cholesterol numbers in a way that would result in decreasing heart attacks and strokes. But that's not the way things started. That was something that we had hoped for in these early days. That's interesting. So it really sounds like not necessarily, not necessarily a shortcuts being taken, but really it's just what's, what can be measured is being measured. And, and the, the more complicated measurement of really measuring the particles is something that you know, most people don't know to ask their provider, and in many cases, just gets gets left behind as a uh, a little bit harder uh, harder measurement to take than than just measuring the cholesterols themselves. So, at this point in the conversation, we could go in several directions. Um, I, I would say that kind of keeping on the theme of we measure what's simple and we hope it works. Keep on that theme for just a second, because it was not lost on people that there were other ways to try to measure lipoproteins and that sometimes these measurements did not all agree with one another. And that became an interesting challenge if people cared. This was a challenge that was first noted by Goffman and Lindergan back in the 50s where they indicated that if there was a difference between the cholesterol measured and an estimate of the number of particles present, risk tracked with the number of particles, not the cholesterol. That wow. was an observation from the 1950s. People didn't really understand what to do with that observation until much later, but it began a process that we now, looking back, makes a lot of sense. And, and the key here is to understand one extra dimension to our conversation that I haven't mentioned yet. And that dimension is the amount of cholesterol or triglyceride that is inside a particle is not constant. It's highly variable. Now think through that for just a second. If the amount of water in a bottle isn't always a liter, then one liter could be one full bottle or one liter could be two half empty bottles. And depending on how much water could be in the bottle, how variable that thing is, you could really mess up the relationship between trying to figure out how many bottles you have based on how much water you measure. So you could That's almost have, you, you could almost have like, uh, sorry for interrupting, you could almost have, um, you know, one instead of one liter in one bottle, you could have one liter in 10,000 bottles. I mean, really broken down into really small fractions. Is that is that possible? Well, there's a limit to this. Uh, it doesn't go quite that far. But but to your point, 
uh, the more variance you have in the amount of stuff being measured per particle, the less that entity can be trusted to give an accurate measure of what you're hoping it's going to do. So what I tell people is cholesterol's only job is to tell you the number of particles in which it's carried. When I measure LDL cholesterol or HDL cholesterol or what have you, the job is I'm looking for it to tell me with some degree of precision and accuracy, how much of that stuff do I have? If the problem is that two people with the same LDL cholesterol can have a 40% different particle number, that's a huge amount of variation. And that is not an overstatement of the, of the difficulty of using cholesterol one person at a time. So the two things that are now beginning to be added to our conversation are number one, the cholesterol per particle is variable. Therefore that undermines the ability to use cholesterol to infer how many particles I have. And the second thing is that people within a population don't all behave the same. Now that seems like a really simple statement but that's something that makes a big difference in how we do population studies. I'm gonna connect these two thoughts in the following way. If I have two measures of LDL, low density lipoprotein, one measure is LDL cholesterol. Everybody's heard of that. Another measure is LDL particle number. That may be new to people, but that's actually counting noses. How many of those particles do I have? I have two ways of measuring the same thing. What happens if two ways of measuring the same thing are in agreement? We call that concordance. There is concordance between two measures of the same thing. It's like two people looking out and counting birds in the sky. And one guy says, I count five birds. And the other guy says, I count five birds. Well, which one's right? Well, they gave the same answer. So you can't tell if one's right or one's not right. Now, what happens if one guy says, I count five birds in the sky. And the other guy says, I count 10 birds. Those are different numbers. There must be a way to determine if one of those is more accurate than the other. That is called discordance. Discordance is getting different measurements of the same thing. And this is what happens when we look at a population. In a population, there are some people in whom the two measures are in agreement. They are concordant. Within a population, there are individuals for whom the two measures are in disagreement. They are discordant. It's very important then to distinguish who's who in a population or you totally miss the opportunity to determine if one measurement is performing better than the other. This is what we have done over the past 30 years to bring clarity as to why would people care about measuring particle number or measuring cholesterol? What difference does it make? It only makes a difference if there is a strong, consistent association of one measurement with disease behavior versus the other. So let me summarize it by saying very simply, when cholesterol and particle number agree, they do an equally good job in predicting risk of disease. When cholesterol and particle number disagree, risk always tracks with particle number. It never tracks with cholesterol. There has never been an exception to that statement in the history of medicine. So the limit of LDL cholesterol is the degree to which it agrees with particle number. If the two are in disagreement, you cannot trust LDL cholesterol. It does not tell you the correct answer quantitatively. It does not tell you the correct answer in terms of cardiovascular risk. It does not allow you to judge a person's response to therapy adequately. You will totally miss the boat 
as to whether your person is doing well or not because what you have relied on for years has a performance limitation that many people are unaware of. So is there, is there, a, I mean, is it 90% concordance or, or 10% concordance? I mean, is this one of those things that, you know, by, by typically only measuring the LDL cholesterol, not the particle, that too many people are left at unnecessary risk. Is that, is that a fair statement? So you're, you're right on. And this is the way to try to unpack that. There are subpopulations of people for whom discordance is very, very high. And then there are populations of people for whom the amount of discordance is very, very low. So let's kind of take the center of the bullseye. Who are the people who have the greatest amount of disagreement between cholesterol and particle number? Diabetics, pre-diabetics, insulin-resistant patients. They are the center of the bullseye. They have a very poor agreement between those two. And as we work our way out to a population that does not have those characteristics, people have a lesser degree of discordance. Depending on the people you actually studied, you'll get different estimates. Three out of four people can be in disagreement between cholesterol and particle number with diabetes, prediabetes, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome. 30 to 40% of people can be discordant in a healthy free living population. The place where the two agree the most is at the extremes. At extremely high LDL cholesterol, there is almost always a very high particle number. At extremely low LDL cholesterol, there is almost always a very low particle number. So if I look at people whose LDL cholesterol is less than 40, the number of those people who have high particle number is extraordinarily low. If I look at people with an LDL cholesterol of 300, the number of people with a low particle number is almost non-existent. Now, why is that important? Because that's exactly the way the population studies looked at the relationship of LDL cholesterol and particle number with risk. They took thousands of people. They took the lowest group of people and compared them to the highest group of people. And they determined that comparing the lowest group to the highest group, LDL cholesterol and LDL particle number were not that much different. They were pretty close. But from what I just said, you're comparing a group that has a high agreement between the two measures on the low end with a group that has high agreement with the measures on the high end. So there's no ability to detect a difference between two measures if they're in agreement. The only way you can detect a difference is to do a very special analysis called outcomes in the setting of discordance. And what that means is you only care about who has heart attacks and strokes when the numbers disagree. And when you do that, you find that LDL cholesterol is non-predictive of cardiovascular risk. Only particle number is. Particle number always gets it right. Cholesterol only gets it right when it agrees with particle number. So it really sounds like people that are at the, you know, extremely high or extremely low measuring uh, on their LDL, it doesn't really matter if you measure their particle, but those in the middle probably makes more sense than not for them to ask their, you know, ask their healthcare provider for a particle measurement. Is that a, is that a fair statement? That's absolutely right. You hit it on the head. So the, the amount of variance between individuals and in, in measurements is highest as you go toward the middle and lowest as you go toward the extremes. There are other dimensions to this. We're just talking about the way it na naturally appears in a population. There are other ways that you can enrich the disagreement between cholesterol measures and particle number measures. One way is when triglycerides are high. 
as triglyceride goes up, there's an increasing amount of difference between the cholesterol in LDL and the number of particles present. Now, high triglyceride is usually part of prediabetes, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and diabetes, but not always. There are other reasons that people can have high triglyceride, but just as a statement, people with high triglyceride or low HDL cholesterol are another uh, type of phenotype where people have a lot of disagreement between cholesterol and particle numbers. So if you're trying to figure out just eyeballing, who are people who would be poorly served by LDL cholesterol? Diabetics, pre-diabetics, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, high triglyceride, low HDL cholesterol, not a very, very high LDL cholesterol, not a very, very low LDL cholesterol. Sounds like a lot of people, right? Yeah, sounds like, sounds like about half the population that, that at least it fits in that category, especially now during, you know, during this COVID era, when everyone is more aware of, of the, you know, additional risks that come with, you know, poor metabolic health and, you know, more and more studies are coming out showing that metabolic health is, is causing, you know, increased severity of COVID-19 infections and, you know, potentially some of the long haul syndrome stuff that at least half the population probably should have their particles measured more frequently than never, like it currently is most in most cases. So I think if anything, we're having a harder time figuring out when we should just stop at LDL cholesterol and say we're good enough. I, I think you're within your rights to say if, if somebody has an extremely high LDL cholesterol, I understand what my first step should be. I may or may not need a particle number at that point. Outside of some extreme cases, uh, I think you're going to eventually run into a situation where you're not going to know what to do based on a cholesterol measurement alone. Right. And not, and not to be a commercial for, you know, the various uh, national labs, as, as people are thinking about, you know, when they go back and ask their, ask their healthcare provider, is, is there a certain test they should be asking for? You know, I know LabCorp and Quest and other regional labs have their own measurement. Is, is there a certain thing that someone, someone needs to walk in their doctor and say, hey, doc, I got a physical coming up. Can we make sure that I test for my particle? Is there a certain test they should ask for every time? This is going to be a longer answer, perhaps, than what you were expecting or your listeners were expecting. <laughs> Shocker. Um, but let me, let me just disclose a little bit of my background so you know where I'm coming from. My, my intent is to be as, as straight up and, and honest with the data as I can be, but because 25 years of my life have been devoted to this very question, and because I have had close dealings with some of the companies that do this, I think it's important to disclose that and tell you how I reach an opinion about that question. So there are a couple of opportunities to measure lipoproteins quantitatively. One way is to measure something that particles have in common, and that can be the protein on the outer surface. There's a protein that is on the outer surface of several types of particles called apolipoprotein B as in boy, ApoB for short. ApoB has one molecule of ApoB on every LDL, IDL, which is intermediate, intermediate density lipoprotein, very low density lipoprotein, VLDL, or colomicron product. So there, there are all these particles, LDL, IDL, VLDL, colomicrons, that all have one ApoB on their outer surface. Now, it turns out that 90 to 95% of all ApoB-containing lipoproteins are LDL. That's an important distinction. So when you measure ApoB, you are basically measuring a pool of particles, 90 to 95% of which are LDL. That is one way that people get to an LDL particle number. 
ApoB tests are most commonly done by a type of reaction called an ELISA assay. There are many manufacturers that do this. There are many kits that have been FDA approved. There can be variation in measurements from one manufacturer to another. So if people are using ApoB to determine particle number, it would be best if they would stick with the same testing laboratory using the same methodology to avoid any uh, changes in values that could be due to analytic variability. So that's one way to get to particle number. Another way to get to particle number is to measure something about the particle itself. And this is what a lot of my time has been spent doing with nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Uh, nuclear magnetic resonance, or NMR, is known to a lot of your listeners as a, a test that's done in laboratories. For example, if you want to determine how much of something present in a low concentration is in a solution, NMR is a very good method to do that. The petroleum industry, for example, will use NMR as a means to uh, determine how well their refineries are working. They can get parts per million, parts per billion of different types of petroleum distillates and determine how things are going. So the strength of NMR is there is a high, a high resolution of compounds that are present in low concentration. One of the things that we were interested in, uh, in understanding NMR, and this actually goes back to the work of my research partner, Jim Otbos. And Jim Otbos is the guy who actually can be credited with uh, applying NMR technology for the purpose of quantifying lipoproteins. And there's a whole backstory with that, but Jim and I met as he was uh, in the process of perfecting that technique. But when we met, it was actually in the mid-90s. I was uh, in between lectures uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I met this guy who said he could measure lipoproteins. We talked for a little while, and he showed me NMR spectra, and I asked a few questions, and he, he and I got to uh, exchanging uh, different data and, and working together. And what I came to understand is that his way of getting to that solution was a very methodical, very appropriate way to understand if NMR could even be used to determine lipoproteins. And this is what Jim did. He started by preparatively isolating lipoproteins from human plasma. Through a variety of different physical separation methods, he would get to increasingly pure subclasses of lipoproteins. Once he got to a subclass that he felt was reasonably purified, he would prove the size of those particles by scanning electron microscopy. So you know that in this sample that you're interested in, you have this specific kind of particle. And then you would look to see what NMR signature came out of the machine when only that particle was looked at. And he repeated this many, many, many times and came up with a library of lipoprotein signatures. And this library of lipoprotein signatures had a high fidelity for a particular particle giving rise to a particular signal. Didn't matter if it came from men or women, didn't matter anything else, this particle gives rise to this signal. And if you have enough knowledge of that, you can then take a human plasma NMR spectra and you can mathematically determine how much of what particles are there to give you the spectra that you're interested in. So if that sounds complicated, it's incredibly complicated. And it's <laughs> decades worth of work that Jim and uh, Elias J. Raja and, and others in his lab went through to get to the point where they could feel confident that they could actually analytically do this thing. 
they could use NMR to actually get to particle number of different types of particles. That doesn't mean it's clinically relevant, but they went through the exercise to prove that it could be done accurately in an analytic sense. Then what happened was many, many years of thousands and thousands and thousands of samples from different clinical trials being run to determine how well these measures of lipoproteins actually predicted the disease that was present. And I can say after 17 million samples, after 600 peer-reviewed papers, there was a, a strong understanding that LDL particle number was indeed an indicator of not only risk, but it was the best measure of LDL-related risk and the best measure of LDL-related benefit. That's one way that you can get to another measurement of numbers of particles. Other people have come up with different methodologies, and I don't want to go through all the different methods that would take too long on our podcast, but <laughs> what, what I described to you was the way that we went through basically truth checking, fact checking ourselves, number one, to prove that we could analytically do the thing we said we could do, and number two, to determine if it made a difference. Anybody who says they can measure lipoproteins, I think, needs to be able to show you their data. They need to show you their data as to how well their test does in actually analytically measuring the thing they say they can measure. And then they have to show you their data to show you how well their way of measuring actually significantly independently predicts disease. That's where a lot of companies may have a little bit of a challenge because the degree of data that they have amassed over time in some cases is very thin. Where there is no data or where there's incomplete data, you have to just wait for more data. Yeah, so as a non-scientist myself, that really sounds like a, a pretty pretty detailed version of finding that particle and in, in, in NMR process sounds like the most accurate way to get the best quality number that people could, could, could have uh, in, in identifying the particles they need to know. So really, you know, kind of tying back into the earlier conversation about, you know, LDL, LDL ranges at the, at the, you know, high and high and low extremes, there's, there's that concordance, but those in the middle that have that discordance really having an NMR, NMR lipo profile test run sounds like the right analysis that those people would need to really understand their cardiovascular risk. Well, the, the NMR lipo profile analysis has the characteristics that we just discussed. Mm -hmm. There are other methods of using NMR that don't go through the same process and report that they can quantify lipoprotein. That's where your listeners need to be very careful and make sure that they're asking for confirmatory data so that they understand that not everything that starts with the same three initials has gone through the same development process. And there are NMR platforms and there are NMR tests in the marketplace that have not gone through the degree of scrutiny that we outlined. So for that reason, one way to be confident that you're getting that degree of validation is to use a LabCorp NMR LIPA profile test. In the future, if people are looking at other NMR platforms, they should simply ask for the data that we outlined and see if it meets their expectations. If it meets their expectations, then it's available to, for them to use. I don't want to try to cast dispersions on anyone. I don't want to say that there are winners and losers. I simply think that there's data and the quality of data should inform people of what they're confident in using. Right. And that's, that's, you know, that's a good way of thinking about it. You know, there's, there's a variety of data. Some's, some's better than others, you know, based on your expertise and your long history in the lipoprotein field, you know, with precision health reports, that's why we chose to use the NMR lipo profile as the base 
biometric testing process that we use for our current diabetic risk assessment and upcoming our cardiometabolic risk assessment because you know in, from from your history your science that is the most accurate that we know of and can stand behind with our our users so another feature that overlaps with this is particles come in different sizes i mentioned that part of the development process for the nmr lipo profile test was to isolate different particles of a given size and to prove their size by scanning electron microscopy there's also a size story of lipoproteins and their risk. That size story is something that people have heard, I think, a fair amount about. Uh, I think most of our listeners understand that there are certain types of LDL particles that are widely thought of as being worse than others. Small LDL has commonly been characterized as the worst of the LDL particles. And large LDL particles are often characterized as not as bad in terms of their risk as small particles. That's an interesting concept because the way we got to that understanding, going back a little bit in medical history, had to do with, can we explain why people with a reasonable LDL cholesterol aren't all at the same cardiovascular risk? So in the 70s and 80s, it was pretty clear that people were having cardiovascular events and we were trying to figure out different reasons why. And there were several groups that identified that people with a low LDL cholesterol had a range of cardiovascular risk. Some had high risk, some had low risk. In trying to understand that, there were many, many additional tests that were performed. And one of the things that was determined was that people at the same low LDL cholesterol had different risk. If people had small size particles, they had much higher risk. If people had larger size particles, they had much less risk. And this started the conversation that small LDL was bad. What we now understand is that small LDL is a characteristic that keeps company with many things. So before you can say one characteristic is very important, you have to account for the other things that keep company with it. At the same LDL cholesterol, if you have small versus large particles, you will have many, many more quantitatively small particles to carry the same cholesterol as would be carried in large size particles. So by being at the same LDL cholesterol and having a different size, there will be more small particles. And then we get back to the question, well, which is it? Is it how many you have or what size they are as to where the risk is coming from? And at the end of some very sophisticated analyses over many different groups and many different decades, the consistent answer is when you adjust size for number, size is no longer predictive. When you adjust number for size, number continues to be predictive. And further, we know that for a one standard deviation change in the number of large or small particles, they have equal associations with vascular disease. So simply put, the more LDL you have, the worse risk you have. LDL is bad. A lot of LDL is real bad. You just have more of LDL particles when they're smaller in size. So size does not become a significantly distinguishing characteristic as to where the risk is coming from in most cases. That's interesting, that's really interesting. Are there things that um, outside of, outside of you know, traditional medications, we know everybody knows statins and statin therapy for cholesterol and cholesterol management, LDL management. As we, as we really think about the particles themselves, do the same medications and, and lifestyle and, be, and dietary changes, do they affect I presume they affect particles, particle size, particle number, just like uh, 
you know, so, so the same, the same treatments we would give people for, um, LDL cholesterol are the same treatments people would use for LDL particles as well. Or is there anything different that would be used there? Well, actually it gets really complicated. Oh, good. <laughs> there are some therapies that don't have the expected effect, or at least they don't, they don't affect them in a one-to-one -one way as you would expect. I'll give you a few examples. Statins, our, our listeners all have heard of statins. They probably are on a statin or they definitely know people who are on a statin. Uh, what do statins do to these different measures of LDL and how do they work? Well, a statin is a shorthand for a type of drug that inhibits an enzyme called HMG-CoA reductase. HMG-CoA reductase is the rate limiting step for how we synthesize cholesterol in our bodies. Cholesterol is synthesized over a 20-plus step biosynthetic pathway. And as you're going down that pathway, there is an enzyme which is kind of the bottleneck, the rate-limiting step, and that's HMG-CoA reductase. That's where a statin works. So statins, when you take them, decrease to some degree the amount of cholesterol your body is synthesizing. That is not the way that cholesterol goes down directly with a statin. When you make less cholesterol synthetically, the body has a compensation to that state where it makes more what we call LDL receptors. An LDL receptor is like a baseball glove. It catches LDL particles. And much like a baseball glove, if I throw you the ball and you catch it with your baseball glove, you can just throw the ball to the side and now you can catch another ball in your baseball glove. And we can play pitch and catch this way. You catch the ball, throw it to the side, catch the ball, throw it to the side until you get tired or I run out of things to throw to you. Now, this is the way statins work. Statins make more of these LDL receptors. They make more baseball gloves. And with more gloves, you can catch more baseballs, more of these LDL particles. So what statins are doing is causing clearance of LDL particles. That's an important characteristic as to how they work. Now, when you lower the number of LDL particles, the particles that are left in the blood for various reasons can have less cholesterol in the particle. So you can have a change in the number of particles. You can have a change in what we call the composition or how much cholesterol is in the particle. And some drugs work primarily on changing the composition of the particle. Some drugs work primarily on changing the clearance or number of the particles. Some do both. And so this is where uh, you can take medications that have an effect on the cholesterol measured, but they may not have the same effect on the number of particles measured. That's interesting. And so th in thinking about behavior, diet, lifestyle, are there typical things that people should do dietarily to help manage their, their LDL uh, particles more so than you know, doing nothing and, and staying on the standard American diet. Many people are fairly sedentary, but you know, there's active people as well that have high particles. Are there certain dietary things that people should be, should be paying attention to to make sure that they're uh, managing their particles uh, as best they can? Well, what this really boils down to is the question of what we call production and clearance. Whatever you have a lot of in your blood, you either made too much, you overproduced, you didn't get rid of it, poor clearance, or both. Most people that have insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, have a mixed overproduction clearance defect. They overproduce these atherogenic particles and they clear them poorly. 
One set of behaviors in diet is to decrease production. And the way that we would do that, for example, in the insulin resistant individual is to decrease carbohydrates, which are building blocks for the production of lipids and lipoproteins. We can also use strategies that improve insulin sensitivity, such as intermittent fasting or eating within a time-restricted window. And these two put together, carbohydrate restriction and eating within a time-specific window, can do a very nice job of improving insulin sensitivity and decreasing the production of lipoproteins. It's fascinating that you know cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular risk, really ties back to insulin resistance, just like our previous conversation about metabolic health. Insulin resistance seems to be, you know, at the core of, of so many of so many diseases that are perhaps treated differently, but at the same time, very, very related. They indeed are very related. There's another extreme. The other extreme can be people who are insulin sensitive, but because they have poor functioning LDL particles, they don't get rid of their LDL once it's made. So these people have a clearance defect that would be like familial hypercholesterolemic patients. There, the diet emphasis is on not eating very much saturated fat because the more saturated fat they eat beyond a certain point, you can downregulate LDL receptors. It's like taking gloves off the field. If you're trying to catch as many balls as possible, that you're not helped by decreasing the number of baseball gloves available to catch a ball. This is where if you have a clearance defect, some emphasis is placed on not doing the things that would result in fewer LDL receptors. So that familiar hypoclastemia, genetic, correct? Familial hypercholesterolemia is a very specific type of genetic disorder. Uh, by, as the name implies, it runs in families and it's high cholesterol. So it's, it's a very provocative name, right? Familial hypercholesterolemia. But what I can tell you is that there are many, many, many genetic reasons to have high LDL cholesterol. You can basically put them in one of two groups. You can have a group where there are many individual problems, a polygenetic type of high cholesterol. And what that means is that you have many different problems in your genes that collectively cause the LDL to be high. There is a monogenetic type, a single gene defect. One bad gene totally messes up your ability for the LDL receptor to clear your LDL particle. That monogenetic type is called familial hypercholesterolemia. We used to think it was very rare. We know now it's very common. One in every 250 children born in this country has familial hypercholesterolemia. This is an autosomal dominant gene defect, which means you only need one bad copy to be affected. You get genes from mom, you get genes from dad. If mom or dad has this, they can pass it on to their kids. So there's a 50-50 chance that kids from parent who has FH, familial hypercholesterolemia, will inherit this gene defect. And there are over 2,000 individual gene defects and counting that we have identified that can cause FH. Oh, wow. Are there certain things people should, should look for to see if they have FH? Is that something that people can tell on their own? Or is that, a, is that fairly commonly tested? Or is it certain symptoms really identify that? I know we're kind of getting off the lipoprotein path here a little bit, but it's, uh, it's, it seems fairly relevant to the topic. Are, are there certain symptoms of FH people should, should be able to see 
That's a great question. We'll probably end up circling back to this as a <laughs> podcast before it's over. But things to, to think about FH. FH can be diagnosed most commonly in the United States clinically. There are clinical things that your provider will look for to determine whether you have or don't have criteria for familial hypercholesterolemia. This includes how high the patient's LDL cholesterol is, how high the LDL cholesterol is in their close siblings, brothers, sisters, parents, close family members. It will have to do with whether the patient has evidence of early vascular disease or whether close first degree relatives, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, kids, have evidence of early vascular disease. There are certain physical findings that go along with FH. They're not that commonly found, but when you see them, they, they count for a lot of points. And they include having very thick Achilles tendons or having cholesterol lumps and bumps on the knuckles, the elbows, the knees, or having a white ring around the colored part of the eye at a young age, which we call Arcus senilis. All of these are physical findings. And so what the doctor or the provider will do is uh, they will have a score sheet and there are several different scoring systems that you can get points for the things we just talked about. And if you get enough points, then your likelihood of FH goes up with the number of points you have to the point that you have definite FH. We'll put that information in, in the show notes as well. So people can kind of do a quick, you know, quick check to see where they're at. I mean, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the podcast that causes people to, you know, go, go bombard their doctor with whole got at FH because my, my Achilles heels and Achilles tendons feel like they're maybe big. The other way that you can diagnose FH is with a genetic test. And genetic testing for FH is done more commonly in Europe than it is in the U.S. You don't have to have a genetic test to prove you have FH. There are some limitations to genetic testing. It's estimated that people who have FH can have up to a 20% negative genetic test rate. So a genetic test does not uh, make the diagnosis, but if you have a genetic test that is positive for FH, you definitely can get the diagnosis from that. So this is a way that you can rule. Well, let me give a shout out to the FH Foundation because the FH Foundation would be the single best place that our listeners could go to to learn more about familial hypercholesterolemia, how it's diagnosed, how to find somebody who's an FH specialist if they wanted to. So the FH Foundation is the best place to uh, go to, to uh, educate yourself about FH and to, to go through this process that I just laid out of trying to figure out, uh, am I someone who should be evaluated for possible FH? How would they evaluate me? And who are the people in my area that I could go to? So the FH Foundation is that uh, one-stop shop for all things FH related. That's great. Yeah, that'll be a great show note uh, addition here for people to have something to go take take a look at, do a bit of homework, and go. So outside of your extensive work, you know, in this field, I mean, again, you're you've been doing this for more than a day or two. Who are the other leading researchers and innovators in, in the lipid science space? You know, that are really coming out with new new information. Are there, there are certain places people should look, or certain experts in this field that that people should pay attention to? People could look to for additional information. There there are folks in this field that have done decades worth of amazing work. One of those people is Alan Snyderman in Canada. Alan, uh, in the mid-80s, came up with the term hyperbeta lipoproteinemia. Right, so let's, let's unpack that. Hyperbeta lipoproteinemia is high apoB-containing lipoproteins. 
We said earlier that you could use ApoB to determine how many of the bad particles you have. And Alan was one of the first people in the 80s to shine a light on the importance of the difference between ApoB quantification and cholesterol quantification of lipoprotein particles. So discordance was something that he was talking about back in the 80s. And he has done an amazing job of looking at this critically in a number of landmark clinical trials, both in terms of epidemiologic studies, clinical intervention trials. If you want to read a number of well-written review articles on this topic, Alan Snyderman would be one person that you want to look to. Another person is my research partner, Jim Otfos. Uh, Jim has published a, a number of things. We have published things together. He has been co-author with uh, other colleagues uh, throughout the country as well as NIH. So if you're looking for another uh, very uh, good reference, uh, someone who's done a lot of work in this field, Jim Otvos, O-T-V-O-S, would be another person. Those are great resources, and particularly for, again, being a non-scientist myself and, and non-medical, I may have to have an extra dictionary or, or give you a shout to find out uh, exactly how to pronounce some of the words as I'm, as I'm doing my own research there to find out how I'm doing with my own uh, lipoproteins. Well, before we wrap up, you know, parting thoughts, comments, anything specific other than what we've talked about so far that uh, you'd like to share with the audience here about lipoproteins? So what we've done today is the highest level beginning conversation of lipoproteins, and we were only scratching the surface. We haven't even talked about triglycerides to speak of and the particles that carry triglycerides and what is going on when people's triglycerides are high. We focused a lot on LDL. We focused some on the ApoB-containing lipoproteins. We spent a lot of time talking about measurement differences and how you determine if one test is more meaningful than another when they are in a disagreement or discordance. So we, we will have many bites at the apple here to further unpack lipids, cholesterol and triglyceride, lipoproteins, the particles that carry cholesterol and triglyceride, and the variety of ways that differences in lipoproteins can be important things to know to both uh, identify cardiovascular risk, to follow people's response to therapy, and to understand why risk is occurring in certain types of disease states like insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome. That's great. Yeah, we're having worked with you for a while here now. Uh, that's definitely one thing that I've found beneficial is a variety of bites of the apple. There's so much uh, so much depth in some of these topics and you know, so much history in some cases of information that was believed to be one way and in, re in, in reality, after a lot of research, perhaps there's a better way of looking at it. So a variety of bites at the apple definitely make a very complex topic a lot more digestible. When you're talking about a topic that's really complicated and that has many moving parts like we're talking about now, there's a lot of value in simplicity at the same time. So one of the things that a mentor of mine many, many years ago challenged me to do was in any complex medical problem, find the three or four things that are really important and make sure you do those three or four things first. You can always dive deeper. You can always go to an extreme in any one place, but you got into the things that are really important. And at the end of the day, I think that same thing is true for cardiometabolic health. You got into the things that are really important. The things that are really important as relates to lipoproteins, number one is lipoproteins are one of the earliest objective abnormalities that occur in insulin resistance before people find their belly getting big or their triglyceride going up or their HDL going down or their blood pressure going up or their blood sugar going up, there are things at a lipoprotein level that are going on. And these things 
can be summarized in the NMR lipoprotein insulin resistance score. That is a, a very sensitive early indicator of this problem and a very, very good predictor of future diabetes. In terms of heart disease, it really boils down to how many LDL particles or atherogenic particles do you have? The higher the number of particles and the longer your body has to deal with a high particle number, the more you accelerate blockage formation, risk of heart attack and risk of stroke. So it's how bad for how long. And then benefit is how low for how long. Whatever the major risk factor is that you're dealing with, be it smoking, be it blood pressure, be it LDL particles, whatever you're dealing with, the more you improve those objectively and the longer you maintain objective improvement, the more benefit you have in terms of decreasing heart attack and stroke. So that's how this really all simplifies. Do I have this problem? Do I have risk factors that have been present long enough to accelerate this problem? Can I change certain factors and keep them low for a long enough period of time to really reduce my risk of heart attack and stroke? That's, that's the big picture here. So I, I, know, I know last time we talked a little bit about, I asked, it, you know, is there any place for people to find your information, uh, whether website, Twitter, LinkedIn, or, or the like, and you were going to get back to it. I know we haven't gotten there yet, but we'll certainly uh, keep working on getting more and more information available from, from your work out to more people. And that's what we're trying to do with our report, right? We're trying to get to, get to that point where we're, we're threading the needle between detail and actionability. Thank you for tuning into the Healthy Figures Podcast. We hope you found this as enjoyable as we did. Drop us a line at PersistentHealthReports.com for topics and guests that may interest you. You can also find us on your favorite social media channels, although we are most active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Until next time, stay healthy.